Many organizations recognize outstanding scientific achievement in a variety of disciplines, but these are typically given later in a scientist's career. There are many scientists, however, who have made exceptional contributions and discoveries early in their careers. These researchers tend to be on the cutting edge of new and exciting fields. To recognize these deserving younger researchers, the Association for Psychological Science presents the Janet Taylor Spence Award for transformative early career contributions. Since its inception, the Spence Award has gone to more than 70 outstanding psychological scientists. This is Charles Blue, and in this special episode of Under the Cortex, I have the pleasure of interviewing some of the most recent Spence Award winners. Each is considered one of APS's most creative and promising investigators. Today, you'll hear from six of them. Ariel Baskin-Somers from Yale University, Sudeep Bhatia from the University of Pennsylvania, Iko Freed from Leiden University, Celeste Kidd from the University of California, Berkeley, Stephen Roberts from Stanford University, and Daisy Singla from the University of Toronto. I first would like to welcome Ariel Baskin-Somers. Hi, my name is Arielle Baskin-Somers. I am currently an associate professor at Yale University, and I research antisocial behavior, so behaviors such as substance abuse, aggression, and criminal activity. That's a fairly broad topic. What has your research told you up to now, and what are you trying to find out, really? What we looked at generally are different cognitive, so like thinking, emotional feelings, and environmental mechanisms that result in antisocial behavior or that might cause antisocial behavior. So for example, one of the things our lab looks at are different personality characteristics, such as psychopathy. Another thing our, our lab looks at are environmental characteristics, such as being exposed to violence, and how these personality and environmental characteristics might promote antisocial behavior and what the underlying thinking and emotional patterns might be that result in this behavior. To give a little better understanding, how would you define antisocial behavior? I'm sure that's a whole spectrum of different activities, behaviors, and attitudes. So how broad is that description? Yeah, antisocial behavior is quite broad. So it can be minor infractions like uh, theft or verbal aggression, so something more serious such as violence or, or murder. We see antisocial behaviors quite ubiquitous. It's exhibited across race, ethnicity, and different forms of psychopathology. It also has grave societal and individual costs, including those related to mortality, health, incarceration, and marginalization. One of the things our lab does is look at different individuals who might engage in this antisocial behavior, broadly speaking, chronically. For example, individuals with psychopathy are defined by their combination of charm and and shallow emotions and an absence of regret or remorse. And they also tend to be quite impulsive and persistent in their antisocial behavior, committing a disproportionate number of crimes and accounting for a large amount of the costs of crime in the United States. So you're not looking specifically at the behaviors. You're looking at the underpinning mental cognitive processes that are driving antisocial behavior. That's correct. And one of the reasons we do that is that the behavior alone might be a little misleading. So there are lots of people who might be aggressive or who might even commit a crime. Many of us have committed crimes. Again, something small from jaywalking. And it's quite typical to 
particularly when you're younger, be risky and engage in criminal behaviors, even something like theft. But most of us stop over time or desist. And the people that we focus on the most are the ones who don't stop, who continue throughout their life course and who engage in these behaviors, but for different reasons. So we might compare and contrast people who commit a theft or a crime of some sort and try and understand the cognitive and emotional features that drive that behavior, which tend to be pretty distinct depending on the type of individual you're looking at. Well, throughout the course of your research, have you come across anything that would be surprising or unexpected? There are a few kind of misconceptions that we've been able to address in in our research. For example, dominant models of psychopathy, again, this group of individuals who tend to be very charming and charismatic, but also tend to regret, lack regret and remorse. Most people think that they have core deficits in processing emotion, that they're just incapable of experiencing emotion, um, such as fear, and that that frees them to engage in antisocial behavior and take advantage of other individuals. Our work has challenged this view by showing that, in fact, individuals with psychopathy can experience emotion, including fear, if they focus on it, but that what they really seem to have is this exaggerated attention problem that makes it hard for them to incorporate lots of information all at once. And this is really important because if we think about individuals as like just fundamentally incapable of experiencing emotion, there's kind of not a whole lot we could do from an intervention perspective. But through our work, we've been able to show that not only can we identify this really specific attention problem and manipulate that so you can make their emotion problems appear and disappear depending on attention, but we could also intervene on that attention problem. And by improving this particular attention problem, we can actually change the brains and behaviors of individuals with psychopathy. So what's next for your research? What do you hope to look into in the future? Where's this all leading? Ultimately, what we hope to do is kind of have a a large model of equifinal pathways to antisocial behavior that allows us to to take different individuals and subtypes of individuals, identify their cognitive and emotional mechanisms that drive their behavior, and translate that into targeted intervention. One of the things that our lab has done pretty systematically is focus on these kind of personality characteristics and and, um, clinical diagnoses like psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder, and really have focused at the kind of cognitive and neural level to understand these types of characteristics and disorders. What we haven't done as much is integrate that with environmental factors, like being exposed to community violence or living in in concentrated areas of disadvantage and poverty. And we we know that these factors are also really important for understanding antisocial behavior. So we hope next to be able to kind of do the same systematic and programmatic work to really understand the cognitive and effective uh, features that are impacted by being exposed to violence and living in disadvantage, and then combine that with the personality characteristics that we also study to have a more holistic picture of what might be going on within the person and in their environment that then produce an outcome like antisocial behavior. What impact do you hope your research will have on the field of psychological science and even perhaps more broadly? I think there are two levels that that I hope to have impact on through the research that we do in our lab. 
first is a far greater understanding and consideration of the complexity of antisocial behavior. And to do so, that means we have to have much better measures of cognition, emotion, brain, and behavior. That we can't keep on relying on these really broad, um, generally vague types of assessments and evaluations, that if we create tasks that might manipulate uh, conditions or we have questionnaires that might understand the nuance of people's experiences a bit better, that we'll be able to kind of parse the features of antisocial behavior much more finely to be able to have a better understanding of, of the causes and consequences of that behavior. The second level that then is related to that, once we have a better understanding of the causes and consequences, would be really to, to have a substantial impact on the justice system and how we conceptualize antisocial and criminal behavior. Far too many people find themselves involved in the justice system and find themselves you know, incarcerated and essentially punished for, for many, many years without really any opportunities for growth or, or development or intervention that might help address the reasons why they, they ended up there. So if we're able to be if we're able to really identify the factors that lead people to incarceration, identify policies that might be able to um, be created as a result of, of the science and be able to advocate for appropriate interventions for these individuals, then we really can have a more scientifically informed justice system. And that's a big part of, of what our lab hopes to do is, is to kind of merge the science and the policy to have a, an impact on individuals who are justice involved. Well, I would like to thank you for being with me today. I have been speaking with Ariel Baskin-Somers. Thank you again for your time. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Speaking with us next is Sudeep Bhatia with the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, my name is Sudeep Bhatia. I currently work at the University of Pennsylvania and I build models of, of, of human decision-making and high-level thinking and reasoning. The models that I build rely on insights from uh, cognitive science and computer science. That's a very broad topic. Can you be a little more specific? What are you trying to find out and where do you really focus your research? Well, I want to build computationally specified theories of human cognition that can predict and explain how people answer uh, everyday decision and judgment problems. Okay, so questions such as, uh, well, will I get coronavirus if I go to this restaurant? Or should I invest in GameStop? Or What's the capital of France? Is it Paris or is it London? These are questions about the world that we have to answer on a day-to-day -day basis. We have theories that can, we already have theories that can help us understand how people do it on an abstract level with abstract experimental stimuli. I want to build computational models that are capable of mimicking how people uh, answer these questions in, in, in more naturalistic settings. Uh, so specifically, uh, questions involving everyday entities, things like coronavirus or GameStop or Paris in France. So this is not like artificial intelligence or a complete working model of uh, human cognition or synapses. You're looking at a very specific decision-making process. How is that different from these, I guess, more broad applications of computer science and psychology? Well, 
it isn't artificial intelligence. Uh, it might be to some extent artificial stupidity because uh, because uh, what we want to do in our lab is not just mimic the kinds of behaviors that people do that are intelligent, but also mimic the kinds of mistakes that they make. Okay, so people overestimate the probability of of uh, say GameStop uh, rising in value. Um, uh, GameStop is a company, and its its shares are are um, overvalued. Some would say right now. And people overestimate that probability, and that's a, that's a mistake, or that's that's not intelligence. And we also want to predict that. Uh, more generally, the focus isn't uh, necessarily on building um, machines that can help people with their day-to-day lives, which is usually what artificial intelligence attempts to do, but rather building uh, computational simulations of human cognition that can help us understand the kinds of decisions, choices, judgments that people make on a day-to-day basis, and how to, how to improve these decisions and judgments, uh, and by doing so, improve uh, people's well-being. I want to note that also the goals of, of this work are, are not as ambitious as, let's say, general artificial intelligence, in the sense that we're not hoping to build a model that can do absolutely everything that humans can do. Like, I don't want my model to necessarily write an academic paper or play chess or do many of the other complicated cognitive tasks that are challenging right now for machines. I want the model to just uh, mimic, if you will, everyday simple human behavior and the mistakes inherent in that behavior. So often when we talk about the use of engineering, computation, uh, computer modeling when studying human cognition, we're often talking about technologies that are really on the forefront, uh, some that are, are not yet quite developed. Is that the case in the work you're doing or are you relying on more tried and true, trusted computer and programming technologies to come up with these answers? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm using both. So from, from the, let's say, artificial intelligence or computer science side of the world, I'm actually just taking um, what you can think of as knowledge representations, essentially facts about the world that, that people tend to know about. All right. Now you can take these facts and give them to a computer model that's been developed by psychologists over the past few decades, a computer model that is cognitively plausible, that has already a lot of support in um, the theoretical and experimental literature, you can give the knowledge about the world to that model, and that model then uses that knowledge the way humans use that knowledge. All right, so, so the computer science gives us a way of representing what people know. The existing theoretical work in psychology and cognitive science gives us a way of, of manipulating and processing that knowledge, and when you put them all together, you have a machine that, can, that essentially knows what people know, uses that knowledge the way people use the knowledge, and therefore thinks and decides the way people think and decide. Over the course of your research, have you as yet come across something unexpected or surprising? Mm, to, to some extent, I'm, I'm surprised by, by the power of some of the more recent natural language processing technologies. Uh, obviously, there's, they're, they're not perfect, and, and there are some substantial limitations. They clearly do not go anywhere near high-level human cognition and reasoning. Uh, or language comprehension for that matter, but they do know a lot about the world and they are pretty powerful. So these, these more recently developed deep learning technologies, uh, and specifically in my case, their applications to natural language processing have, have been surprisingly powerful. Um, and that's obviously some, a belief that I share with many other researchers and many other practitioners as well in the world. So that's one, one uh, source of surprise. Another source of surprise as I have progressed in my academic trajectory and I've learned more about uh, my field and other fields around it, I'm surprised by the degree of theoretical overlap and, in some sense, 
repetition and to some extent even redundancy that's that's done. I think the way psychologists work, you know, every psychologist has their own theory. What's the what's the famous saying? Psychologists see theories like like they see toothbrushes, right? Everyone has their own. They don't want to share their theory with anyone with anyone else. Yeah, I find that to be a little bit troubling because I think it, it indicates that psychology isn't really a cumulative science as much as let's say other fields in which um you know theories are developed and refined by generations of researchers uh so kind of as i've progressed from being a phd student to a postdoc to an assistant professor to someone who's going up for tenure soon uh i've i've become more and more uh cognizant of that repetition and that redundancy it bothers me more and more and it's something that uh that i i hope to address in some sense in my own work so that leads me to my next question. What are the next steps in your research? Is there a gap in understanding that you need to address right away? My work, again, which, which uses computational modeling to study decision-making, judgment, uh, thinking, and reasoning, there are many um, trajectories within that broader research program. So one, one area of, 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 of research that I'm pretty optimistic about is in the use of uh, established memory models applied to real-world knowledge representations that, that, again, I obtained from some of these more recent machine learning or, or artificial intelligence technologies. So human-like memory models apply to knowledge about the world in the service of high-level cognition. So, for example, cognition involving uh, logic or um, the evaluation of conditional probabilities. So I, I'm pretty optimistic about that avenue. If that turns out to uh, be successful, then, then what we would have essentially done is link models of, of human memory, which are fairly simplistic models applied in, in typically in simple tasks, would have linked those models to models of high-level cognition. Uh, so that's one area of research that I'm pretty optimistic about. And the second area of research is it's almost meta-scientific. It's using uh, computational techniques to integrate the large number of theories that are out there into, let's say, a meta-theory that, that uh, solves this problem of redundancy that I was just telling you about. What excites you most about your research? I think we are in a rapidly changing research environment when it comes to machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence technologies. I think every year we have new advances that completely you know, advance our ability to, to model human cognition and behavior. So working in this space is very exciting. I mean, in three years, five years, who knows uh, what kind of awesome technologies the computer scientists would have come up with that I can then use to better understand human cognition. Um, so that's, that's very optimist. That's, that's a source of optimism for me, and it's a source of excitement. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Taking our discussions all the way to the Netherlands, we have with us now Eiko Fried with the University of Leiden. Hi, Charles. Uh, this is Eiko. Um, I work at Leiden University as an assistant professor in the Netherlands. Your work takes a really broad, frankly, complex look at mental health problem. What has your research told you and what are you trying to find out? Yeah, I think the, the general message here is that it might be worthwhile exploring mental health problems from a sort of complexity angle. And uh, I don't want to belabor this point. Uh, I don't want to preach uh, possibly to the choir, but, uh, but I think it's really important to, to consider mental health problems as sort of heterogeneous, meaning folks with the same diagnosis, like major depression, can be really different in terms of risk factors, uh, etiology, symptom profiles, and so forth. And then the sort of the second cornerstone of complexity would be that mental health disorders can be dynamic. 
and we've studied them mostly from a sort of static cross-sectional angle when we know that they evolve over time um they have patterns and problems sort of cause each other um, in, in depressed patients you will often see that people who are tired are fatigued the next days and have concentration problems and sort of missing that dynamic aspect would be detrimental and the last part is that mental health disorders are emergent and that means that uh, there's sort of biopsychosocial problems going on or they're embedded in biopsychosocial systems and that these what we observe as depression or schizophrenia sort of emerge out of interactions among these systems and um, yeah embracing that complexity um, will uh, hopefully guide our path forward to better uh, preventions and uh, interventions. So have you uncovered anything unexpected? Have you found something surprising in your research? Maybe two examples. Um, both show that we might have to go back and question some uh, sort of fundamental assumptions that, that the field has been carried for many decades. The first example is from a paper in Lancet Psychiatry we uh, wrote together with Astrid Chevance in Paris. And um, usually we query people who are diagnosed with depression or, or when we want to find out things about folks with depression, we ask them a number of specific symptom questions. How sad are you? Uh, how, uh, do you have concentration problems? Do you have suicidal ideation? So these are sort of depression symptoms. And there are many ways to ask these questions and many scales exist. But what we did with Astrid was we asked a very large sample of depressed patients, their caregivers, but also clinicians, what they think qualitatively we should ask to depressed patients in clinical trials, for example. And the most common or one of the most common answers was mental pain. But surprisingly, mental pain is not featured in any of these most commonly used depression scales. And that means sort of we need to check our assumption here if we're really asking all the right questions. Just Sorry. a brief interruption. How would you define this pain? What does that actually mean to a person who's suffering from mental illness or a caregiver? Yeah, that's a very good question there. There's sort of old literature on mental pain around the uh, beginning of the 20th century. Um, a couple of books have been written on this, but in the last 30, 40 years, there's fairly little on that particular topic. And um, I, I don't want to speak for uh, folks diagnosed with depression here. It's not my place, but from the qualitative responses we have received, it, many, many patients would describe it as sort of physical pain or very similar to physical pain. Um, maybe an inner state of agony, something like that, and um, that this can be extremely impairing and should be a core focus of, of treatment if possible. And um, yeah, it's odd that we don't query um, participants who have these sort of problems about mental pain too much. So was there anything else in your research, going back to the previous question, that you felt was unexpected or surprising? Yeah, maybe the, the second example is from sort of nosology. So in, in clinical psychology and psychiatry, we have the DSM, sort of this holy book that tells us how to diagnose folks and, and what the criteria are for diagnosis. And my uh, work has focused on major depression, which is one of these main diagnoses. And the DSM has certain specifiers or, or subtypes. So these are meant to be smaller categories within a larger category. And for depression, for example, there's the subcategory called melancholia. And when, uh, when we looked at uh, depression and melancholia recently in a paper with Lorenzo, uh, Lorenzo Luases, we found that uh, you can meet the criteria for major depression in 10,000 different ways. So there's quite some heterogeneity. 
but you can meet the diagnosis of melancholia in 340,000 different ways. So there's much more pronounced heterogeneity, which is odd given that it's meant to be a subtype, it's a specifier. It's meant to be more homogenous, basically, than the main category. And so, again, this goes back to questioning some of the assumptions we, uh, we have about mental health. So where does this take us next? Are there things that you really hope to find out moving forward? Yeah, I really want to make, make true on the promise of trying to embrace complexity in mental health research with a focus on depression. So we've just received a uh, five-year grant, and what we want to do is we want to follow 2,000 um, young adults at risk for depression, and we want to follow them uh, sort of from this heterogeneous, dynamic, emergent perspective that I mentioned before. And to do so, we will give these uh, folks smartphones and smartwatches and sort of look how they are doing in their daily life. We will ask them a couple of questions every day, um, only a few to minimize burden. They will carry smartwatches and give us some sort of digital phenotype information on sleep and activity. And we hope that having sort of these insights into the real lives of people will eventually allow us to be able to predict future depression onset much better uh, than we can with the current data that we have in the field. And so um, the overarching goal of this project would be to build a sort of early warning system for depression in young adults. What impact do you hope your research will have on the field of psychological science in general and perhaps more broadly in society? I really hope that we can improve sort of uh, prevention efficacy and treatment efficacy, uh, specifically for depression, but of course also for other mental health disorders. There has been... um, quite disappointing progress over the last few decades in in trying to um, help people. I would say on average, every second person we see cannot be helped at least very well in their their first round of treatment. So there's plenty to do. And maybe another general topic is that I'm a bit disillusioned with all the oversimplified stories we've been telling in the field of mental health research. Um, Depression is a brain disorder. Um, Schizophrenia is purely genetic and these sort of things. And I, I really hope that um, sort of embracing this idea that we definitely need to measure biological variables and model them, but we also definitely need to embrace sort of environmental aspects of mental health, social aspects of mental health, and psychological aspects will be necessary to make um, advances in understanding uh, and prediction of mental health disorders. Thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Next with us is Celeste Kidd, an assistant professor with the University of California, Berkeley. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, My name is Celeste Kidd, and I am a professor at UC Berkeley in psychology. I understand your basic research is to understand how beliefs form, particularly those that form in infancy and continue throughout life. We do study the formation of beliefs starting in infancy and continuing through adulthood. Uh, Our earliest studies are with eight-month-old babies and are about the organizing principles of how you pick what you're going to pay attention to in the world. Uh, Our older studies, with with adults, uh, tend to be about things like uh, how people become sure, uh, how they get set on a particular belief. And lately, we've been very interested in why people sometimes hold beliefs that do not align with objective evidence in the world. That seems to be a growing concern, or at least something that has been much more in the news and in the public consciousness in the past several years. So what has your research told you and what are you trying to find out? We are interested in 
understanding how people form beliefs from the perspective of understanding that uh, you can't possibly know everything that is true in the world, no matter how motivated you are. Uh, there's just too much. And so you're always going to have to pick and choose with every choice that you make. Uh, that's coming with an opportunity cost. So if you dive in deep on one topic, that necessarily means you're not going to be able to dive in as deep on another topic. Uh, a lot of our research is understanding how you make those decisions and uh, whether or not it might be possible for us to give people better access to truth by understanding uh, how they make up their minds, what happens when they become sure, uh, and how those cognitive mechanisms interact with you know, new technologies that we're using for making up our minds, mainly the internet and uh, online platforms that are making choices about how to serve content. So we know based on recent research from the lab that uh, people make pretty good decisions about where they should allocate their attention. In particular, they're aiming for places where they have some intermediate amount of uncertainty. Um, so what that means is finding an area or a topic where you have a little bit of background, uh, but there's still some things that you haven't made up your mind about. Uh, those are the areas that are most attractive to people. We've also learned from our research that how you move from unsure to certain depends largely on the feedback that you're getting. Uh, so if you're not sure and you come up with a certain idea and you get just a few pieces of feedback, that could very quickly push you from, I'm not sure at all, to I'm very certain. And another thing that our research has told us is that once you're very certain, it's very hard to get you back. <laughs> Problem with the system is that sometimes people become very certain when they should not be. And once that happens, people not only don't continue to seek out information that would prompt them to revise, even if we incentivize them by offering to pay them to look at information, it doesn't count for the same once they're already sure. Has there been anything in your research that surprised you or was unexpected in the data? We thought that it would be easier to encourage people to revise. We thought that one of the reasons uh, that was primary that people get stuck with the wrong idea is because they're not seeking out things once they're certain. But if we presented it to them, then they, they would update accordingly. That hasn't been true. And we've struggled for years to come up with some kind of intervention that might be effective at making people more willing to, to, to consider well-established beliefs, but so far we we haven't. So that was surprising to us so that we're scientists. And uh, I like to think that some of what our scientific training is, is learning not to trust our intuitions and to be able to find truth in the world, despite the fact that we are fallible and uh, humans make mistakes and there's misinformation out there. So we, we could be misled. I am still holding out hope that we'll be able to figure out something, but the lab has largely switched its efforts from uh, trying to convince very certain people to revise to trying to understand uh, how to prevent people from becoming prematurely uh, certain before they've had the opportunity to confront evidence that would give them the right idea. Not knowing how long you've been actually engaging in this research, could you even speculate, has there been a change in this since really the proliferation of social media where it's so easy to come into an echo chamber of your own beliefs, your own wishes and desires, as opposed to, say, 10 years ago when it was perhaps a little more likely that you would come across counter ideas? That is a hypothesis that 
we would agree is a good one that needs further work uh, on it to, to, to better understand these dynamics. What we know based on just basic human psychology of how people make up their minds, there's a few things that would lead us to have concerns about how people are currently doing their own research, seeking out information. In particular, it's not just about what evidence you encounter, the order in which you encounter the information really matters. And in particular, early information counts for more. Uh, so if you encounter a series of, of um, articles while you're still in the process of making up your mind, those influence you greater than if you'd encountered them once you'd already made up your mind. They don't count for as much later in the process. Uh, with that in mind, now realizing that's the way in which people gather information is through systems that are generally designed in order to maximize engagement. Uh, so that means they want to maximize the amount of time that you uh, Look at it, the, your likelihood of clicking, your likelihood of liking it, your hang time sometimes, how long you like hover on it if you're scrolling through a feed. Maximizing for engagement likely prioritizes things in a way that's different from how a human would curate information and in ways that are potentially problematic from the perspective of giving people the best possible chance at finding out what's true in the world. If you had any advice or recommendations for people, say, who are friends or family members to ensure that they are getting accurate information or able to process it, do you have sort of one or two points that would be helpful for people in general? Yes. Point number one is pick your battles. There's a lot of misinformation that's out there. Uh, there's a lot of beliefs that people have that do not align with objective evidence that exists in the world that don't matter. So if somebody holds a belief that is kind of quirky and fun, but not harmful, they should know that we do not see much evidence of the so-called slippery slope kind of hypotheses. Like we don't see evidence uh, for the most part that believing one thing that isn't true uh, makes you predisposed to believe a bunch of other stuff that isn't true, uh, as people sometimes think think is the case. Another piece of advice is that you shouldn't be thinking about the people in your life that hold pseudoscientific or conspiratorial beliefs as otherly. When we survey a large number of people, most of them hold at least one pseudoscientific or conspiratorial belief. 98% uh, of people in our, in our most recent sample hold at least one, and the average number from this, this last study that we ran was, was nine. All of us, I think, are most likely trying our best to discover what's true in the world, and all of us are making mistakes uh, and that's just how it has to be, given that the world is a complex place. Where you need to be worried is when a belief is not held, but it's very strongly held. As like if it's having neg negative consequences on a person's life, uh, if it poses a potential health or safety hazard, those kinds of beliefs are, are problematic. So focusing on on those, uh, knowing that the best way of approaching those is maintaining a social relationship with the person and just offering as you can, uh, as it comes up, other evidence to the contrary, being respectful and explaining your position and showing interest in understanding somebody else's position. Uh, that's the way we as humans make progress. And that applies to your family too. Well, I believe that this has been a very exciting and interesting discussion. So I'd like to thank Celeste Kidd for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I now have the pleasure of speaking with Stephen Roberts, an assistant professor of psychology at Stanford University. 
Stephen Roberts, assistant professor of psychology at Stanford University, and I do research on how kids and adults think about group boundaries and how they reinforce those group boundaries. Let's start right there. I'm not entirely sure what you mean by group boundaries. Great. Yeah. So, um, you know, when young kids um, come into the world, they quickly learn about various social categories, divisions in society. This person is in that group. This person is in that group. Um, and they you know, learn through a variety of means, social means, cognitive means, of ways to make sure that those divisions stay in place, that those boundaries remain in place. And in fact, they often behave in ways that reinforce those boundaries and make those boundaries bigger um, than they are. So that's basically the, the big picture. And I'm specifically interested these days and most days in um, race-based boundaries and racial boundaries and racial hierarchies. What has your research told you and really what are you trying to find out? Yeah, um, I think um, big picture is that my work and the work of many others, of course, has taught me that racism comes from all, from all angles, many angles. It emerges really early in development um, through a variety of means and that is going to be very, very hard to undo that. But my research also tells me that it's possible to undo that and if enough people come together to identify and address the problem of racism, then maybe one day I'll be out of a job and that would be, that would be a good day. So if you're looking back at it, the research you've done so far, have you come across anything unexpected or surprising that you just didn't expect to see out there? Yeah, I think that, um, there's a, I think almost everything, honestly, I think that, um, Everything is at the same time kind of, you know, expected or predicted, but also at the same time surprising. Some of the some of the most surprising findings in my career thus far have been, for instance, finding that for young children and adults, the extent to which they conceptualize God as a white man does in fact reinforce the belief that white men are more godlike or more fit for leadership positions. Uh, that was one really surprising, I mean, expected, but surprising to just see the data kind of bear that out. And another uh, uh, surprising, expected but surprising finding was that the research that we do or the, the amount of work that gets published on race and racism in top tier psychology journals, that that's actually predicted by the race of the editor, that under white editors, there tend to be fewer of those papers expected for a variety of reasons. But again, just surprising or shocking to see that see the data bear that out. How do you specifically conduct your research? Is this something where you try and do real world examinations? Do you look at the literature? Are you trying to do work in the lab? How do you actually uncover these these bases for racism? That's a great question, Charles. And I, I think we in my lab we do it in a variety of ways. I, I think I'm trained more as an experimentalist, so we do a lot of experiments, specifically looking at okay, does this belief or does this social system reinforce this kind of inequality or this kind of ideology? And if we can experimentally demonstrate, for instance, the consequences of thinking of God as a white man, if we can experimentally show that that has X consequences, then that's one way in which we can you know, get insight into a psychological basis of racial hierarchy, representing an all-powerful deity as having a specific identity has consequences for racial hierarchy. And one thing that uh, outside of the experiment, something that we're trying to get better at is taking advantage of all the data that already exists in the world. There's a lot of archival data um, on, you know, just publicly available online of how do certain inequalities 
um, exist in, under certain conditions in certain domains. So we've we're trying to get better at just getting the data that's already out there. But at our core, you know, we're interested in change and finding ways to um, get kids, get people to think about the world in different ways for more equitable outcomes. And you know, my bias as an experimentalist that you know an, an experiment that can demonstrate that. Um, is is the most powerful way to do so. We should be doing more work on interventions in the real world. Uh, maybe one day we'll get there, and I know there are a lot of great people who do that, uh, but we do experimental stuff and then archival data analyses. So where does this take us next? Is there some grand question out there that has yet to be addressed, some challenge that you're able to take a look at possibly in the future to see where the research needs to go? It's something I've been thinking about a lot this year and since last year, you know, in the United States um, with George Floyd and just everything, it has really forced me to, to rethink where where do I want to go with my research. I think I and our field have spent a lot of time looking at um, racism and, and inequality, racial biases, what feeds into that. And I think we can do that for hundreds of years, I'm sure, unfortunately. Um, I think that we as a field spend less time more intently looking at ways to like the psychological basis of anti-racism. Like how do we get kids to embrace positive norms about race early in development? And how do we get them to want to speak out against injustice and protest against it and, and try to make the world more equitable? How do we do that? Um, so I think that's where I want to take my research going forward. You know, you spend years working on, on, racism it can be a very dark depressing um reality uh, a never-ending reality and, and i think that for me in my career i can't i can't spend i can't do that for the rest of my life so i think i need to focus on something more positive in terms of anti-racism and i would also love to do something completely different like research meditation or spirituality or how people construct life narratives i mean just something that's a bit more relaxed um so i think i may try to get in in to some of that, just for my own sanity. If the public could know something about your research, what is it that you are studying now that you wish more people really understood intrinsically? One thing that we're trying to work on from a variety of angles is white supremacy. And I think that when people often think about white supremacy, they think of you know someone in a Klan hat, burning crosses, going out, the most hateful person. And what I wish that people would understand with white supremacy and with racism is that this is not necessarily about individual attitudes. It's just about the broader system that we live in. And before any human being who's currently alive today was even alive, the United States of America, for instance, you know, had, I mean, slavery, Jim Crow segregation, I mean, mass incarceration. There are systems in place that have, you know, that advantage some and that disadvantage others whether we want to acknowledge that or not. And kids come into this system and they pick up on it and learn about it really early in development. And they're kind of victims in the sense that they start to perpetuate it. So um, you know, when we think about racism and white supremacy, we need to rid ourselves of the belief that this is just about a few bad apples. I mean, there are great psychologists who do work on this, that there are a few bad apples who perpetuate the problem. But there's a bigger system that, we, that really... Um, affects and hurts us all. And if we think about it from that perspective, I think we can be more strategic about, you know, making the change and, uh, uh, and, and fixing the world in a, in a more productive way. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you and take care.
Finally, on this special episode of Under the Cortex, I have with me Daisy Singla, who's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Hi, Charles. My name is Daisy Singla, and I currently work in the Department of Psychiatry at Mount Sinai Hospital and the University of Toronto. I'm a researcher in the broad field of evidence-based psychological treatments for depression and anxiety. Well, since your work focuses essentially on these evidence-based interventions, can you explain a little bit to us what your research has told you, and really what are you trying to find out? Sure. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the research that predated me. Um, And the research that predated me basically showed what interventions worked, particularly for the growing population who experienced depression and anxiety. And I would say that I'm simply trying to make these evidence-based interventions more accessible for this growing number of individuals experiencing depression and anxiety. The majority of my experiences over the past decade have been in remote communities across Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. And in these settings, also known as the Global South, individuals become really innovative in how they deliver interventions because there's really little to no resources for mental health. There will never be enough, enough psychologists or psychiatrists to address the burden of depression and anxiety both abroad and locally. Um, So what do we do? We train people with no previous experience or formal training in mental health to deliver these interventions. And my research and so many others before me have shown that lay counselors can indeed effectively deliver these interventions. The other thing that my research has shown is that the choice of lay persons really depends on the given context. In communities in India and Pakistan, the preferred layperson delivering an intervention for, say, perinatal mental health may be a peer, uh, another woman in, in the community who may have similar experiences. Whereas here in North America, our research has shown that the preferred layperson is actually a midwife or a nurse. So it's really about borrowing some of these innovations that allow for us to overcome these barriers to improve the accessibility for psychological interventions. Throughout your research, have you uncovered anything unexpected or surprising? (laughs) Absolutely. I think the thing I was most struck by was the relevance and utility of my lessons learned from the Global South to our context here at home. So first of all, um, that we have similar problems. Um, The problem of access is an issue here at home. One in five women uh, during the perinatal period here in North America experience depression and anxiety, yet only one in five of that 20% can actually access psychotherapy. And that, to me, is unbelievable given how effective we know talk therapies are. Secondly, my research has revealed that there is a large and growing number of people who are interested in training laypersons. And this is not just something that happens abroad but also something that happens here in high-income countries like Canada and the U.S. In fact, and finally, possibly most importantly, um, the lessons that I've gained abroad in terms of being pragmatic and person-centered are definitely applicable here in North America. One of the things that we really focus on abroad is delivering interventions or delivering the treatments where and when it's convenient for our patients. And I think COVID and the use of telemedicine have improved this patient-centered approach, but we need to do better. 
you talk about evidence-based, this is not looking at new evidence. These are just the tried-and-true techniques that have been shown in the past decade or two to actually have impact. But you want to bring those to more of the general public, not necessarily through traditional channels. Has that been tried much in the United States and Canada and, and North America, or is that a new type of intervention? With regards to access, um, it's a problem worldwide. <laughs> With regards to training laypersons or some of the innovations that I just mentioned, absolutely. It, it originated in the UK and the US to train paraprofessionals back in the 1950s. And what we've seen over the years is that um, there's a lot of red tape to utilize and to train laypersons to deliver evidence-based psychological treatments. However, it certainly is possible. Um, and it's been shown to be effective that non-specialist providers or laypersons with no formal experience or training in these psychological treatments can indeed deliver psychological treatments. Just for perinatal mental health alone, we've identified 46 trials utilizing non-specialist providers, also known as laypersons. Well, if you were to take a look at your research, where do you hope to go with this now? What gaps are there in our understanding to make this more applicable, more practical within the within society? So I'm currently working on a PCORI-funded pragmatic trial, and it's being implemented across Toronto, Chapel Hill, and Chicago. And we basically want to know, can lay providers, in this case, nurses and midwives with no formal training in mental health care, can they be trained through a brief workshop to deliver evidence-based psychological interventions for perinatal depression and anxiety as effectively as specialist providers? And secondly, um, in the same study, we hope to answer whether telemedicine is as effective as in-person psychotherapy. So there's been good preliminary evidence in favor of both lay providers and telemedicine, but we need larger sample sizes in real-world settings to basically determine whether these are indeed comparable and how to make them scalable. And secondly, I'm hoping to address the bottleneck of supervision. We know that supervision is a useful and helpful technique to learn psychotherapies, to improve our ability to deliver quality care, but we still rely on experts to provide supervision. And I think we can do a better job of leveraging peer supervision in particular. So I envision a digital platform where trained laypersons can log into, rate their peers on a given audio session, and then share their feedback with one another as one means of supervision. Well, I would like to thank you for joining me today to discuss your research. Uh, this is Charles Blue, and I've been speaking with Daisy Singla. If you enjoyed the research presented in this episode, don't miss the 2021 APS Virtual Convention, May 26th through the 27th, where psychological scientists from around the globe will be sharing their research. Special early bird registration rates are in effect until April 15th. Learn more by visiting the APS website at psychologicalscience.org.